Hello, and you're very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. very welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Today, given the month that's in it, we're on the run-up to St. Patrick's Day and I thought we'll have a chat about the big man himself with the famous fox Hibernicum, uh, Terry O'Hagan, uh, to look at what we actually know about Patrick and look at some of the evidence and what his writings uh, could tell us really about early medieval Ireland, particularly that 5th century, and why he's such an important figure. Terry, you're really welcome to Amplify Archaeology. Thanks for joining me today. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I suppose we've all heard lots of stories, you know, growing up and things like that about St. Patrick and the big legends about the snakes and the shamrock, and the Easter fire, all of these kind of things. What evidence do we have that a guy called Patrick really existed? The evidence that we have are two remarkable documents uh, written by the man himself. Uh, I suppose it's probably... Good to clarify who exactly we're talking about because St. Patrick is a man of uh, many aspects, many features to many people. Uh, we're not talking about probably what most people would think about when they think of St. Patrick nowadays, which is about the folklore, uh, the legendary aspect of him. That all sort of goes back to the, the early medieval hagiography, uh, tales of Patrick. Uh, we're not talking about that because that's a kind of a, a cartoonish, super saintly figure. We're also not talking about um, the patron saint of Ireland, the head of the modern day church, it still, you know, um, holds him up as uh, their founder, uh, particularly Armagh. Uh, he's obviously a person that people still pray to, you know, people are devoted to him. We're not talking about that particular figure as well. That's something to do with, you know, sort of modern day religious sensibilities. So we're talking about the man behind all of that because quite remarkably, underneath all of those many, many medieval and early modern layers, there is a real figure who lived in the fifth century, who wrote these two remarkable documents and they still survive today. The uh, earliest copy that we have is from the ninth century book of Armagh, um, but the language uh, of the, uh, the texts themselves, the Latin is uh, a fifth century textually. Um, we have eight surviving manuscripts after that. Um, and in, in fact, they're all from outside Ireland. So we got stuff from the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries in UK and France. The text is fairly established there. And in fact, actually the Irish, the earliest copy that we have, the Irish version in the Book of Armagh is heavily redacted because some of the actual stuff that Patrick was saying was not particularly pleasing or useful to the Irish church at a particular moment in time. So all of his uh, human aspects, all of the uh, sort of maybe slightly controversial aspects of it were stripped out of that one, but they're all included in these foreign versions, uh, copies of the of the text that, that found uh, their way outside of Ireland. And seven out of eight of those manuscripts are all independent of each other, so the text is quite secure. Um, uh, and even within that uh, text itself, we have um, some, some uh, very intriguing sort of internal evidence uh, of when he was writing too. So he selective use of, of biblical quotations. I mean, his, his writings are absolutely dripping with biblical metaphor, but some of the biblical sources he may have been sort of familiar with, 
uh, it sort of matches with the end of the fourth century, start of the early fifth century, just around about the time they're beginning to uh, transition from uh, the old, what, what people nowadays call the old Latin version of the Bible into the uh, Vulgate Latin version of the Bible by Saint Jerome. And then, of course, we have independent uh, references to him quite early. We have a, a, an early reference to him, possibly sixth century, in a hymn uh, where he's obviously uh, given uh, uh, pride of place. That's a hymn, Audite Omne Amantes. Uh, it's mentioned again in the seventh century. Uh, in the early seventh century, we have uh, another reference to him in a letter uh, by uh, somebody in Ireland writing to the Abbot of Iona, giving out about the uh, ecclesiastical controversy. He mentions Patrick, our father. And then we have lost lives that we know were being written about, sort of the earliest attempts to try and formulate that sort of medieval version, uh, hagiographical life of St. Patrick. And then we get the actual earliest surviving attempts at that by Tara Khan and Muraku, some of his earliest uh, hagiographers, and an awful lot of what then comes on to become the myth and the legend of Patrick uh, starts uh, with those early medieval Irish lives. So all in all, we have the actual textual evidence of his documents itself. We also have the independent references, so we know that his popularity, his cult, his importance is growing and is being harnessed and appropriated uh, by church authorities as the early medieval period goes onwards. Based on uh, those kind of stories, I, I, I suppose his own writings. Can we tell a lot uh, about the man himself? Like, what was his background? Who was he? Where did he come from? You know, do, does he give that sort of biographical kind of detail to any extent? Can you extract any evidence from that? We can extract a, a certain amount, uh, and in a way, sometimes some of the best evidence is some of the stuff he kind of hints at and doesn't say. Um, um, but in terms of what we know for certain, he tells us quite firmly that he's from um, uh, Roman Britain. Uh, he refers uh, three times to Britain or the island of Britain as being his homeland and that of his parents. Uh, he's thoroughly Roman, uh, uh, Romanized. He's third generation uh, Romano-Britain. His father, uh, whose name is Calpurnius, he is a, a deacon in the church and he's also a decurion, which was a, a kind of a lower class imperial gentry. He's, it's sort of like a town councillor nowadays, responsible for local taxation and things like that. His father, or sorry, his father's Calpurnius is the deacon. His, his grandfather is Petitus. Uh, he's a priest. His grandfather owns a, a villa outside of a particular town that uh, Patrick calls. Well, in the manuscript, it's, uh, it's slightly corrupted. It's probably something like Banavent Bernier somewhere on the west coast of Britain. It's never been conclusively identified, although I have a particular uh, favouring of a particular place somewhere on the Cumbrian coast, uh, the modern town of Ravenglass, back in the fourth and fifth century, that Roman name of that town was Glanaventa, which sort of matches fairly well with Banaventa and a couple of other things around that would make, would uh, sort of suggest that. He grows up in a thoroughly Romanized uh, environment. Uh, so he would have been very well to do, middle class, uh, a son of a town councillor, grandfather owns a villa. We know they have slaves and servants on that villa because that's where he's taken captive uh, in, a, in a raid uh, just before he, he gets transported to Ireland. Um, he sort of, later on in his writings, he sort of, um, in a probably a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way, he sort of laments his lack of learning and education and sort of says, if I hadn't been you know, kidnapped and transported to Ireland, I would have been a lot more educated and learned, like you rhetoric, uh, uh, 
rhetorical experts and things like that. And so he probably would have been destined to follow along in the, the footsteps of his own father and would have had some sort of, you know, fairly uh, good career uh, in the imperial uh, Roman administration. Um, so that's his background. I suppose his nice, comfortable path to a, like, you know, reasonably low-level nobility and upper-middle-class existence got very interrupted, as you said, uh, when he was captured in a raid. Do we know who was doing the raiding at the time and where they came from? We don't know exactly who was doing the raiding, although we, we can be fairly sure it was uh, either the Irish or, or, or the Picts or the Caledonians or whatever you want to call the people of uh, modern-day Scotland at that particular time. There are references in classical sources from about the 360s onwards to sort of annoying uh, periodical raids by Irish and Picts uh, onto um, uh, the coastline of, of Roman Britain. So it was beginning uh, to be a bit of a problem. Uh, the Romans refer to the Irish as Scotty uh, in this particular uh, period of time. Uh, and uh, they sort of throw um, all sorts of shade at these sort of, you know, annoying sort of raids and things like that. But what, what it does speak of is uh, what was probably a, um, a deteriorating situation in Roman Britain at this time. We're heading towards the end of the Roman period, obviously. Um, uh, probably the security sort of maintained by sort of, you know, Roman military power was beginning to weaken. Uh, and it's obvious that the Irish and the Scots are picked uh, are obviously well aware of this. They're interacting right across this Irish Sea frontier zone uh, and they're um, uh, making the best of a, of a bad situation. Um, so regardless about who actually kidnapped him, he ended up uh, quite soon after he was kidnapped uh, on the far side of Ireland, uh, off the coast of Mayo, which not a lot of people would probably realise. Uh, a lot of the uh, patrician legends focus on Northern Ireland, on Downpatrick, on Saul, uh, Mount Slemish and things like that, but there's none of that in his actual historical writings. He actually names a place uh, on the west coast of Mayo. Mm -hmm. Which is, is that the famous wood of Foklet? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, you could say Foklet. I say Foklu. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, and what would Ireland have been like then? What do we know archaeologically about that sort of? You know, we we just. We're not quite in the early medieval period as we categorise it in archaeology as yet. We're on that threshold between what we would call the Iron Age and the early medieval period. What? How did people generally live? Was slaving a big way of life then? Do we know? Uh, how was the settlements on a, a you know urban centres at this stage, or was it kind of how did I? What would he have seen and experienced? Can we say anything about that? I mean, it's a really difficult question. You know yourself, the, the Iron Age in Ireland has always been a really, really problematic uh, period. Although it, I think, you know, recent research in recent years, we're beginning to get uh, a re-examination of, of, of just what things are. I mean, in a very simplistic way, people in Iron Age Ireland are not living in ways that leave an awful lot of material remains. Um, a lot of, an, awful, an awful lot of it is invisible. Uh, Ireland is a ceramic at the time. There's no pottery. That's a problem. Uh, there's also no coinage. But in a certain way, that also helps us because around about this time, we do begin to see uh, foreign coins, Roman coins, uh, Roman objects and stuff uh, showing up in Ireland, Roman pottery, Mediterranean pottery, things like that. So um, because there isn't any of that here, it really does show up once you know where to look for them and things like that. I suppose if we want to talk about um, 
settlement and things like that. They're probably not living a million miles away from where they would have been living in the early medieval period. They're just not leaving an awful lot of traces behind. Uh, I think recent research in the years, you know, the likes of settlement cemetery sites, uh, unenclosed uh, uh, sites like that. I think we're, we're, some of them are showing a continuity between uh, habitation and occupation uh, coming from the fourth and the fifth centuries. Uh, they're probably just not living in the way they will be quite soon uh, once the early medieval period really gets going and living in an awful lot of uh, more established enclosures that we can actually detect archaeologically. In terms of the landscape itself, it's interesting. I always think it's a little bit uh, underappreciated just what the landscape would have been like around about that time. If you think about it, we're just coming through the transition from prehistory into history. The start of late Iron Age into early medieval, it would have been the most complete prehistoric landscape that ever existed in Ireland. You think about you, all of those monuments that we still have are all still there and possibly more. The ones that haven't been, you know, eroded or haven't been destroyed or haven't been uh, changed and tampered with. So they're living in uh, a ceremonial prehistoric landscape and they're, they're, they're making use of some of these places, you know, so, so things are, they're burying their dead in ancestral bounds and cairns. Uh, of penannular enclosures and ring ditches, some of which go back to the Bronze Age and earlier Iron Age. So there's obviously sort of a, still a focus on certain sites. They're interacting on sort of the so-called famous royal sites are obviously uh, uh, active um, for ceremonial and assembly purposes. We have Roman material at the Hill of Tara, for example, and the Wrath of the Synods. We have gold coins, some of which Patrick actually mentions, mentions a particular form of currency. Uh, we find some of those at uh, the outs, the just outside the entrance to Newgrange uh, in the late fourth and, and, and fifth century. And of course, <clears throat> if you want to think about the landscape, then there's probably well, different fairly zones. There's there's probably I'd like to think of it in sort of four or five different ways. You can look at the coastal landscape. Obviously, the coast was probably the best part or the best way to, to move around. Uh, you know, he obviously ended up uh, on the coast of Mayo uh, via sea. Uh, most likely. So you've got coastal communities who are in touch with maritime trade and exchange and seafarers. Think about all of those promontory forts uh, along the coasts of Ireland, which I really don't think gets the attention they deserve, it's particularly in this particular period, because the promontory forts, you know, that idea of emporiums, of distribution centres, of, of being the sort of the first meet and greet places where you can get maritime traders from abroad and then that, that goods and the trade and the objects slowly get this disseminated back into the interior uh, via gift exchange and things like that. Um, you think about sort of areas maybe further inland, uh, I think from the from the third century onwards, and I'm talking really simplistically here, there's a sort of implication from the paleo-environmental evidence that land is being cleared and woodland that had previously been regenerating is being cleared as well. So they're obviously beginning to increase uh, land for farming, both pasture and arable. Um, and then of course, if you think about the Iron Age, an awful, <clears throat> whenever we mention the Iron Age in Ireland, we, we, we think of bogs and an awful lot of Ireland and certainly in the middle uh, would have been wetlands, uh, would have been uh, bog lands. And Something else that annoys me sometimes, you also get this sort of depiction in popular culture of bogs as liminal places and dark and mysterious and no one's in there. And it's quite the opposite, you know what I mean? They, well, first of all, it's the only way through the middle of a uh, large expanse of the middle of Ireland. People are moving through these, these lowland wetlands, these boglands. They're going from dry place to dry place. 
we have ample evidence from the Bronze Age right into the Iron Age of towers, of wooden trackways, you know, you think of Corley and Roscommon and things like that, but even smaller versions uh, of people going into those bogs and they're going in to leave votive deposits. We have, um, I mean, you know, the Kingship and Sacrifice exhibition in the National Museum is a really, really good uh, point of interest. An awful lot of people probably would have seen it uh, at this stage. But they're also going in to, to exploit the resources of it. They're, um, you know, depositing practical things like bog butter, you know, because the bog stores things, uh, particularly foodstuff, um, uh, for a long time. It's, they're almost like the natural fridges of the late Iron Age and early medieval period. And of course, it's the Iron Age. What's the most readily available form of iron at this particular point? It's bog ore, you know? So they're going in to, to mine that stuff out of the ground, to, to harness the resources. Think about the, the, uh, the riverine resources around about the wetlands and lake of fishing and fowl and things like that. So it's incredibly uh, industrious and busy in those particular places. So these kind of, uh, you know, sometimes I often feel that when people are talking about Patrick's story, uh, and, it, and in a sense, they often, uh, you know, there is, there is truth to, like, he is, I suppose, the person who brings us into the historic era. Yes. <laughs> Would I be right yes. in saying his accounts are the earliest accounts uh, ever, that we know of in mm -hmm. Ireland, written accounts? Um, but you often get this picture, don't you, that he comes to this country that's covered in trees, full of wolves, yes, yes. pagan shrines, people dancing around stone circles, uh, and it's a very simplistic pagan sort of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, it's obvious, you know, from you, your description, though, that that wasn't really the case. I mean, but do we can we say much about... I know it's a... It's a difficult one because there's so much certainty online, isn't there, about what people believed in Ireland before Christianity arrived. How much do we actually know what they believed? Uh, very, very. Is there anything we can say really about Iron Age spirituality? It's probably too big a word, but, you know, belief and practices beyond the, the example that you give of the, the bog bodies there, the kingship and sacrifice thing, which... You know, there's a question there about is, is, is there some elements of spirit, religious practice in the way that those people were disposed of? But is there anything else we can kind of talk about in terms of that? I mean, very, very little. Nothing historically. Um, it's a bit of a, uh, a bugbear of mine that people kind of look for paganism in, in the early medieval literature and things like that. They're all thoroughly Christian um, and they're all looking back to a, a fictional pagan past that they are actually creating, um, you know, in terms of gods and what people believed. I think the answer we could ever lie is just a few elusive uh, in indications that come completely from archaeology. So, I mean, we've already mentioned some of those votive offerings um, uh, in bogs. Obviously, that has something to do with whatever cosmology is going on. As to what it means, we don't know. Um, obviously, they were revisiting the past, like living in that prehistoric landscape, reusing those ancestral mounds and ceremonial places. Uh, obviously, that had some connection maybe the cosmology but there's absolutely uh, nothing for sure that we can tell and in fact if you look at Patrick's writings he never mentions anything like that he doesn't mention uh, a priestly class I mean the only tentative thing he mentions at what one stage uh, and I don't see it as ritual at all he mentions um, paying uh, money to those who judge in the regions now that sort of hints at you know so-called Breton law Breton lawyers jurists and things like that but um, there's absolutely no mention of 
uh, uh, whatever the, the native Irish cosmology, except for one little hint at the end as well, actually. And again, it's nothing we don't know. He kind of draws attention to the sun and kind of says, those who, who worship the sun will not come to the end. We worship the true sun, all of this. But he's mentioning sun as an S-U-N. Now, if we didn't have that, does that change anything? Does it tell us anything we didn't know? No, it doesn't, because we have, you know, prehistoric tombs orientated on the heavenly celestial bodies. Uh, I'm thinking of Bronze Age gold, uh, all of that sun disks, all of that solar imagery and all of that stuff. So again, it's fairly obvious from a uh, prehistoric uh, population who derived, you know, their very existence from the cycles of the year, from agriculture, that the sun would play an awful lot of worship. But it's, it's interesting that if you, if you look at the vast sort of sweep of prehistory that right at the cusp of, as you rightly say, sort of the, the start of recorded Irish history within Ireland, which comes in the form of Patrick's writings, he mentions just that little tidbit of the sun, sun playing some part in, in their cosmology. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I suppose one of the, the other things that we see, uh, you know, one of the other kind of claims that we hear a lot about is that pagan places were Christianized, you know, and, and we'll talk a little bit later about some of, you know, St. Patrick's Well, for example, and things like that. Um, but there is kind of, I suppose, not too far away from the sort of geography that you're putting Patrick in there, up at Dune Feeney, there's that beautiful standing stone which has yeah. a cross, uh, two crosses added to it, you know? It's yeah. interesting to think about places like that, isn't it? About whether there was a transition of belief there or was that originally a, a Christian monument? It's very hard to say, isn't it? Well, I, 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 I mean, Dunfini in particular is is a is a perfect example. I mean, it's obviously, I think it's it's um, it's 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 obviously continuity into the Iron Age. I would see it almost as an ancestral ferta. This is what the Irish word for these these ancestral mounds. Um, I could see that standing stone being there already, and then those crosses are added later uh, as. The Christian or the transition to Christianity comes in. What's interesting is again that sort of level of continuity. Again, not everywhere, but in certain places, you know, you, you see that in um, other evidence. I mean, I'm thinking, of, you know, you think of Ballymacaward in Donegal, uh, Culp, all of these sort of Culp and County Mead, all of these sort of transitional uh, uh, sites where you can see Bronze Age and Iron Age burials, you can see cremations even, and then you see this transition to long cysts. If there is a, a transition, it, it it doesn't affect the burial for another couple of centuries, you know what I mean? I mean, we're, we're, we don't really, really see Christian cemeteries or properly organised Christian cemeteries until much later in, in the early medieval period itself. So even if cosmologies change, religions change, in a way, um, certainly in this particular period, uh, the places where they bury their dead don't change. Um, so, and in fact, uh, I'm always sort of reminded with this, there's a good bit in Tyrakon's Life of Patrick, again, written 200 years after Patrick, but Tyrakon is from a particular area that Patrick uh, was captive in. He makes a great play on that, but he there's a particular funny story where Patrick is, is, is going along and he comes across two graves, one of which has a cross over it and one of which doesn't. And of course, the person in the grave miraculously uh, talks to Patrick and says, uh, I'm a pagan and somebody has mistakenly placed a cross over my grave it should be beside the guy next to me you know what I mean and Patrick sort of you know does a kind of a, a swift exchange and carries on you know um, but what's nice about that is and we kind of get this in early medieval literature particularly Terragon who's a personal favourite of mine we get this sort of awareness and knowledge that pagans and Christians 
were buried in the same places, uh, even as late as the seventh century, uh, that it wouldn't have been something unusual. You know, the very fact that Tyrakon is telling, and it is only a story, but he's, it's set in a particular realism of that particular landscape, and his audience would have understood that, oh yes, of course, yeah, that, that can happen, you know what I mean? Uh, there isn't a, a spatial difference in this particular point. Yeah, the, I suppose it's not as formalised in some ways then as, you know, this is the whole idea we have of sacred land and, you know, all of that kind of uh, precincts of boundary and all of this kind of thing is a later invention. And that's quite an interesting thought, isn't it? And I suppose looking at the man himself again, you know, I guess he, he was a pretty young man, wasn't he, when he was first captured and brought to Ireland. You know, the the traditional story is that he's put to mind sheep, isn't it, up on um, the side of a mountain kind of thing. How much of that is do we have from himself and how much of that is kind of later embellishments and so on that develop the kind of story? Um, do we know much about that, his actual experiences as a slave here? Uh, not much, uh, but everything that we do know, again, everything that you, you just said comes from his own writings. Um, he was taken um, at an early age, um, probably about 15 years of age, uh, he mentions that he was here for six years before he escaped. So, you know, roughly 15 to 21 uh, is when he's here. So you think about the experiences of a young teenage being teenager being transported to a completely you know alien land uh, and just being put to work. He tells us himself that he was put to work uh, minding flocks, uh, which is an interesting word. Again, people sort of say, oh, yeah, flocks, that'll be flocks of sheep and things. And he talks about being on the mountain uh, of being in the uplands and things. But the particular Latin term that he uses uh, could apply to all sorts of different animals. It's a kind of a generic term that could be used for any kind of domestic animals. And there's another, again, interesting little incidental detail. Um, and in a way, and this might sound a bit mad, I think this is a, a, a really interesting way of looking at historical documents through an archaeological lens or sort of through the lens of a landscape archaeologist, you know, and thinking about what this might actually mean. He mentions being out in all weathers, particularly cold weathers, you know, winter and snow and things like that and ice. Uh, now, if you think about what's probably happening, you're, you know, if you're a slave, you're, you're put to work minding these uh, whatever flocks of animals that your herds, flocks and herds of animals that you're doing with. But that's a summer pastime, you know, that's transhumans, that's past, you know, that's, that's you know, the warmer months of the year when you take your, your flocks and your herds and you bring them away from the sort of the central uh, settlement areas, they're using up the grass on the sort of the uplands and then you take them back in come the end of the summer into the autumn so that they're closer to home during the winter. What's Patrick doing on a side of a mountain during winter and things like that? And that's slightly confusing unless you start thinking of other things that he could have been doing in pasturing, uh, pasturing flocks and things like that. Uh, and that's when you start to think, or certainly I start to think about things like pannage. Pannage is when you set pigs into a forest. Uh, and it's a really good, um, environmentally friendly and sort of sensible way of managing sort of scrublands of, of, of forests. You know, the pigs root around, they'll eat away. And then their main source of food, if you do it at a particular time of the year, again, come from the autumn onwards into winter is mast crops or the crops coming from trees and nuts and berries and bushes and things like that. And of course, as soon as the Irish annals 
are uh, sort of being written in a contemporary fashion, you get these periodic announcements and, and sort of notes of when certain years in the early medieval period were really good for, for the mast crops. You know, they can say, oh, there was a, a brilliant crop this year. And, you know, the, the, the trees and the bushes were laid down with berries and nuts and things like that. Uh, and we know panage is, is, is being used all over um, prehistoric Europe. I mean, the Romans were doing it and it, and it becomes very popular and a well-established sort of industrial level in, in medieval England later on. So I think it's a rather a long-winded way of saying that Patrick was probably doing uh, several jobs. You know, he probably was um, sort of looking after cattle at certain stages of the year, but he mentions the whole fact of being out in, like in all weathers, he was probably looking after pigs in forests and things like that. And of course, as we've already mentioned, the one place name he does mention is the, the scene of his captivity. In Mayo, he calls the wood of Folklu. Uh, and Folklu, uh, is probably his version of trying to render an Irish name. And it's probably two different Irish words, fo, which means under or beneath, and chlud, which kind of just means a covering, like a forest cover and things like that. It's almost like the, the wood of the underwood, uh, for a better, for want of a better uh, sort of phrase. But it kind of, again, matches with the, the, the descriptions and sort of the, the, what little he does tell us about being out in weathers on the sides of mountains, uh, uh, in near scrubby woodlands. That's a really interesting thing because you know what the the sheep thing always slightly confused me, right? To be honest, because kind of sheep farming, that upland sheep farming, only really got uh, now. I could be absolutely shot now when I get feedback on this, right? Because I'm not an expert on it at all. But my understanding was that upland sheep farming only became really a, a big deal with William Marshall and the Normans, kind of really industrialized it in a way and and very way all mountains look all around Ireland now is due to that process of putting yeah. sheep on the mountains and the hills so I, I never kind of thought of it as a big I know obviously there are goat and sheep species in Ireland in prehistory uh, but I never thought about you know it just didn't see it seemed to me to be kind of a later sort of idea of him sitting there with yeah. a shepherd's crook you know watching the sheep yeah. it just didn't seem to fit in my head so it's interesting to think about that absolutely i mean but probably what you've got there going on is got the whole biblical thing of a shepherd and looking after the flock and all of that thing i mean that's just ripe for for harnessing then by by early medieval hagiographers and things you know absolutely he's in a good tradition of holy shepherds and such yes. <laughs> um i suppose uh Looking at that, he escaped, didn't he? He he managed to get back, uh, back home. And how how did he? Do, do we know? Like, does he say how he did? Did he get back to Britain? Did he kind of jump on a boat at the nearest port in Mayo? Or? He does. He gives us a very few tantalising details, and it's the one aspect of his writings that I'm pretty sure every archaeologist and early Irish historian would absolutely kill to hear more. Um, after these six years when he's a captive, he has an intense religious experience. He's on his own and he's completely sort of falling back on anything that he ever knew from, from his previous life. Uh, he kind of mentions then, you know, while he was a, a youth, he didn't pay too much attention to his elders uh, and to his religion. He certainly wasn't religious at all before he was captured. And of course, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. So, you know, obviously having this really, really traumatic experience, uh, probably horrible, really, of just being completely ripped away from your thing. That obviously deepens um, his belief. He becomes an absolutely fervent uh, Christian. He, he talks about praying constantly out in weathers. Um, and after these six years, 
he has his dream that he interprets as divine guidance and the dream tells him just to go to a ship that's waiting for him on the other side of Ireland. Um, and he talks about uh, traveling 200 miles to a place where a ship was uh, waiting for him. Uh, he kind of looks for a while that he, he's not going to be let on board the ship and all of a sudden they change their mind and quite quickly he's taken off and that's how he escapes. Now, there's an awful lot of biblical metaphor going on in the background for that. But what's interesting, well, first of all, like I said, if only he had told us more about that travel across Ireland, 200 miles right across the, the interior of the country, it would have been absolutely fantastic. Just even a few, you know, tantalizing morsels of information but what's interesting again i don't think a lot of people realize patrick has no reason to give us that detail of how long it, or how long he traveled 200 miles and he uses a particular roman measurement you know the imperial roman mile um, and that has you know it, it patrick doesn't tell us an awful lot of information at the best of times so when he gives you these sort of rather exacting little tidbits of information i think it's these are the things that you need to sort of have a second look and say well why is he saying that you know patrick's letters when he's writing uh, as an older man he's writing them primarily to an audience in britain and sort of he changes tax sometimes and writes to fellow christians in ireland so people in britain the detail of 200 miles wouldn't have meant anything to, the, to them, you know, they don't care how, how big Ireland is, but it would have meant something to people who are familiar with Ireland. Uh, they would have had a fairly, you know, a good idea about how big it was, how long it took to travel and things like that. And the other thing, and again, this is just goes to show you how nerdish I am. If you draw a circumference of 200 Roman miles from Mayo, you come out at a fairly um, a tight corner in South East Ireland between Wicklow and Wexford. And that's a natural place for ports. Uh, it's a really, really good place. Um, if you also, again, how, how, how did he get there? No idea. But if you were somewhere on the west coast of Ireland, you wanted to get back to Britain, there's one direction that you would travel in and you can just follow the sun. That would eventually lead you back east. But if you follow the sun, um, it's never ever due east, unless it's right in the middle of, of the equinox and the, midsummer and things like that so he would have been slightly traveling northwest southeast anyway and again if you trace that line right across you will come out at you know somewhere between Wicklow and Wexford now and here's where it gets completely nerdy there's something really really amazing about the the coastline of between Wicklow and Wexford uh, and it's one of two points around the entire coast of Ireland where the tidal drop is at its least you know, the difference between high tide and low tide and things like that. Um, it's less than one metre. It's the smallest tidal drop in the whole of the Irish Sea, you know, sort of between Wicklow, Arklow, all the way down to Carnesore Point. I looked up the tides today just on an app. I have it on my phone just to look it up. It's 0 0.8 difference, 0 0.8 metres today between high tide and low tide, the, the first one. So that is really important for pretty much anyone engaging in maritime activity right up until the 18th century, until the building of modern piers and things like that. If you have a port, the best places for those would have been the places with the smallest tidal drop. Um, uh, there's a reason why the Vikings settled from Dublin, Wicklow, Arklow, Wexford, Waterford, all the way down. There's a reason why the Normans, when they come over here, they go to Wexford first with their big ships in order to establish the land before coming to Dublin as well. And interestingly, you'll probably appreciate this in a mad sort of um, I, uh, something ironic anyway, the largest type difference 
in the tides in the Irish Sea coast or, or in the Irish Sea area is actually off the coast of Lancashire and Cumbria, where the tidal drop can get up as much as eight metres, you know, uh, which is, if that's where it comes from, uh, it's quite interesting. And it actually, that you can imagine um, that would lend itself to kind of hit and run raiding, wouldn't it? Because if, they, if they're not ready to go out after you straight away, they've got a long wait before they can try to exactly. get you back. I was going to say, it's almost a testament to the, uh, the, the sea skills and the maritime knowledge of these Irish raiders or Pictish raiders. If they can raid the west coast of, of Cumbria and, and Lancashire, you do not want to be, you know, waiting to try and make a quick getaway. I'm sorry, lads, we'll have to wait eight hours, you know. No, no, you'd have to know what you're... God, it's really interesting to think about this. And it, that's one of the uh, really interesting things about this whole story, isn't it? Because it's a layering of not only historical information, but it's looking at uh, the environment, the landscape, the archaeology, and it's just piecing all of these little lenses together to get a bit of a clearer picture of somebody that we think we know really, really well, but... It, it turns out we've kind of added all of these layers onto him, all of these kind of um, attributes and characteristics. And I suppose before we start talking about, you know, all the, the later information that kind of gets applied to Patrick and all of these kind of big stories that, that get ladled on in later centuries, what do we know about why and when he chose to come back to Ireland? And because it, it was quite a gap, wasn't it, before... Uh, since making his escape to, to return into Ireland. Did he come back on his own steam or was he instructed somehow to come back by a superior? Or, or what, what can we tell about that? This is a complex area of his writings. He's not, um, he's not particularly linear when it comes to you know, chronology uh, at this particular point. But we can kind of piece together a few uh, fragments. When he escapes, it takes him a few years to go back home uh, to Britain. Uh, with his parents. As to what he was doing during those few years, we don't know. He could possibly have been in Gaul because later on in another part of his writings, he mentions having been in Gaul before. He expresses a desire to return and visit some uh, fellow religious people there. But when he is back in Britain after a few years, he gets his first dream. And again, we've sort of had this before with him. He keeps talking about these dreams, these divine guidance that he interprets uh, coming to him in the form of dreams. And he dreams, the famous thing that, that everyone knows, of uh, being called back to Ireland, of seeing somebody coming from Ireland, from, from the place where he was uh, a captive, the Wood of Folklore, with a letter called Vox Hibernicum, hence my particular blog name, uh, the voice of the Irish. Uh, and he starts to think, you can sort of see that that's sort of the kernel of an idea of his brain about returning. But he doesn't do anything immediately with that. And in fact, he goes on to have, uh, obviously, a, an ecclesiastical career because 30 years later, he's still in Britain, I think, um, although it's, again, it's unsure where exactly he is. And he's been considered for the grade of bishop, but he gets uh, refused. Um, something comes up. Uh, he's considered not to be suitable. There's a bit of a stain on his character by uh, a sin that he divulged 30 years previously. His friend... Uh, uh, makes this public knowledge and Patrick is pretty much thrown into disrepute and he seems to have been uh, uh, incredibly uh, obviously upset by this it, it upsets his plans he had obviously been thinking about returning to Ireland but he really wanted to be a bishop um, to come back as a bishop uh, in particular and at that particular point in time he then says that he goes against the wishes of his superiors and his, his family who plead with him not to go uh, and he makes it quite clear that he comes back on his own steam. 
uh, on his own uh, reconnaissance. Uh, he's a, it's, he's a, he, he's a self-appointed bishop. He keeps sort of refer referring to this all the way through his documents that whatever I am, I've received from God. Uh, I've been anointed by God. Uh, God gives me the, you know, the authority and things like that. And I'd like to think of it as a way of, he, he probably, I mean, his early experience in Ireland would have been, if you just think about it even in modern day times, I mean, that would just stay with you for the rest of your life, to be ripped away, to be a slave. Uh, what a horrible experience. And in a way, you can, you can kind of get this sense, well, I certainly do from his writings, that he's spent the rest of his life trying to make sense of that. Why did I escape? Why me? And why did no one else did, you know? Um, and you can see it turning around in his mind and sort of the idea maybe slowly coming to him over a few years that maybe this was for a reason. And of course, um, that's all sort of drawn up in his fervent uh, sort of Christian belief. And he starts putting two, two together. Well, maybe I need to go back. So it was obviously very important to him. He obviously wanted to be a bishop to go back in order to minister, in order to baptize, and but particularly to ordain clergy, because this is another sort of underlying sort of religious aspect to it. He really wants to ordain clergy. Um, so he needed to be a bishop for that. And the fact that he was rejected uh, is obviously a big body blow for him. But after after that, it's it's not enough to dissuade him. And he comes back uh, on his own recognizance, which is probably why he writes these documents in the first place. You get these distinct impression from these documents that he was answering uh, claims and criticisms from uh, fellow Christians back in Britain as to what he was doing. They didn't approve of his activities, um, the self-appointed bishop operating uh, uh, completely sort of off the reservation, uh, out, out of sight and out of mind. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of other sort of uh, indications in the writings that he, there was, you know, other criticisms leveled at him in, the, in terms of the way he was, he was conducting his, his mission and things like that. Very interesting. And do we know much about who he was traveling back to i mean were the christian communities in ireland at this stage uh had that because he wasn't you know the you know he, he wasn't believed to be the first christian ever to go to ireland and ireland isn't some i you know i think sometimes people often think of ireland as being because it's an island being somehow unattached to the rest of what's happening in europe when it was in fact constantly in contact as we said earlier with, with Roman Britain but also yeah. the continent too so were there Christian communities in Ireland and what did that is there anything we can really understand about that very early phase of Christianity in Ireland it's a really interesting thing obviously he's not the first Christian he doesn't pretend to be he doesn't say he is he in a way he either he in a particular part of his documents uh, he actually alludes to the fact that there are other Christians there because he says I've gone uh, bringing the gospel beyond the place where it's been brought before. Patrick's big interest is in going west. He keeps sort of, you get this sort of biblical metaphor of him bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, which in his day is the far reaches of Western Ireland, because that is in the Roman classical world, the ends of the earth. There's nothing beyond that. And so that's his kind of his biblical metaphor and religious reasoning uh, of going back. Having said that, He's writing to fellow Christians in Britain, but also in Ireland. Um, there would have been, obviously, uh, more established Christian communities, more most probably on the East Coast, uh, the ones sort of closer and nearer to Roman Britain. Uh, and you get this real sense then later on um, in his other writings, he talks about traveling around an awful lot, of uh, getting access to new territories, 
of sort of doubling back, ordaining clergy, baptizing people and moving on again. So you kind of get this idea of him setting up newer Christian communities in the far west, away from the sort of more established Christian communities in the east. There's a sort of a long sort of chain of networks and communication. I mean, the very fact that he's writing letters, you know, sort of gives you an idea. I mean, there, there's no postal service, obviously. So he's obviously connected with people who are, you know, disseminating these letters back uh, in, in, uh, to the east coast of Ireland and on to Britain as well. That's very interesting. And would there have been anything kind of recognisable about these early Christian communities in the form of, say, uh, that we could tell archaeologically, like that would, uh, you know, what I, I'm not sure what the earliest church we know of, um, because the early churches in Ireland uh, made an oak, famously, the Dahiok, if I pronounced that correctly, I'm not sure. <laughs> Did that sort of thing exist at this time? Do we know of anything that early? Kind of. I don't. I don't think we do. I mean, there's a few tentative sites that people sort of made before. Oh, look at that! You know, look for a rectangular building in in a otherwise round house world. Um, it's it's very unusual. He he mentions nothing about a church. He mentions actually the only bit of ecclesiastical architecture he mentions is an altar. Uh, and even still, that could have been a boulder, it could have been a table, uh, it could have been anything. You get the distinct impression uh, from his writings that it's very much a rough and ready, an ad hoc Christianity. Uh, it's traveling, it's, uh, it's mobile, it's on the move. Uh, and that sort of speaks more to external uh, places and things like that. Having said that, if you think about Roman Britain and sort of late antique Roman Christianity over there, yeah, you've got a couple of uh, churches with apses, but you've also got the likes of Lullingstone uh, Villa. You see the sort of replicas of that in the British Museum, fourth century uh, into the fifth century uh, uh, mosaics and, and certain rooms in the villas have decorated Christian you know, iconography and things like that. You think about and what would have been the norm in sort of the Mediterranean world is that, you know, an awful lot of worship is going on in people's houses. Okay, so it could be like he's traveling from sort of friendly house to friendly house, so to speak. Yeah, but I, I, I'd say even more than that. I mean, he's, he's definitely setting up um, um, small Christian communities because, I mean, his second document in particular, the, the letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, the, uh, the very point of that is that one of his Christian communities has been raided by uh, pirates and slavers and uh, some of them have been killed and some of them have been captured and taken off into slavery themselves. And what's interesting about that is one of a, a really key indication that he gives is that all of these people were gathered together for a mass baptism when this happened. Now, it's either incredibly lucky that pirates and slavers stumbled upon them just at that particular moment, or it's well known that this is a sort of a regular thing that these particular crowd of funny people who are beginning to do funny things in funny ways with a new God, they all gather together at particular places at particular times of the year. They're ripe for the picking. They're raided at this particular time. So that doesn't speak of sort of individual houses. That speaks of, you know, slowly being established uh, communities of people living and working together. You know? Isn't it funny that, um, you know, just as you described that, it just struck me that centuries later, the Vikings used exactly the same tactics, didn't they? They, they, they wait for a big get together at Christmas or something to go. Right. Yeah, which, which is a great point because again, you know, Vikings, you know, you, you look at popular culture, the Vikings suddenly burst onto the stage on Lindisfarne and on all of that sort of stuff. They knew exactly where to raid because they were already in contact for decades or 
years beforehand. You know what I mean? They knew what the, they were going for. Uh, they'd scoped out the land already and, and, and realised, you know, what was good. That's the thing. It, once a tactic works, it works, I suppose. Yeah. And going back to uh, going back a few earlier centuries, back to Patrick, do we know much about, uh, if we don't know much about where exactly they were worshipping, do we know much about who was doing the worshipping? Were they typically from one strata of society are these the kind of the lower end of things the slaves freed people or was it a mix of different strata were there more men more women does he describe any of his followers in any detail he does and um, some more than others but what's what's quite striking actually about his writings is that it is completely varied and it's throughout all levels of society he mentions everyone from top to bottom so of course he comes in contact with chieftains and kings um, he mentions paying them gifts. He mentions uh, sort of uh, employing the sons of chieftains and kings as bodyguards to help him on his journey. Sort of, you can imagine him going from territory to territory, new territory in order to placate your way. You pay the sons and they give you the muscle and the, the prestige and the status to, to, to you know, keep you safe and things like that. Uh, he mentions um, particularly a, a, a noble Irish woman, as he calls them. He's particularly proud of, of, of converting her. Um, he has a big focus on women. Uh, he sort of differentiates, uh, differentiates between widows, between celibates, and between female slaves. You know, he kind of says they, they, they come in for a rough lot. You know, some women are going against their parents by sort of turning to this new religion, and yet they still do it. He's particularly proud of that. Uh, and he also says that those who work in slavery suffer the most. So he's ministering to all levels of society. He's obviously, you know, you know, mixing with the high polloi in order to get access into these new territories. But then he's sort of going down the strata and and and, and going towards, you know, slaves and unfree and lower class people. Uh, in a way, it's also interesting too. He kind of mentions uh, in the same paragraph when he's talking about women in slavery, he mentions that those of our race great numbers of them here and what he's talking about there is fellow Britons and if you think about it his isn't the only slave raid where he was captured as a youth so there's an underclass of probably you know first second possibly even third generation Britain people who are slaves and they have children and they are slaves too so you've got this underclass of of uh, of people existing uh, so yeah it's really really interesting he, he, he's at all levels yeah it, it, it's a very interesting thing to think about isn't it i mean i suppose i imagine that if he didn't do that if he didn't try to get in good with the the nobles he wouldn't have lasted very long in the first place just turn around and stirring things up you know i, I can't have seen him getting too fast absolutely absolutely and again i mean what's, what's what's really incredible is i mean no one better than patrick would have would have imagined this you could imagine somebody rocking up with no experience of ireland and they wouldn't have lasted long sometimes i think that's what happens to palladius because we do hear that reference don't we? like he, he's often brought up in relation to patrick and isn't he slightly earlier um could you tell us a little bit about what we know about him uh, as well. Ladies, I mean, this is again another really, really complex thing. But basically, I mean, uh, what happens with, later on with Patrick is obviously, and again, you kind of mentioned this earlier. Uh, come the seventh century, when when Armagh and the sort of the church is going for primacy of all Ireland, they're beginning to look around for the earliest evidence of Christianity, and they find that through the figure of Patrick, and particularly through his writings. So that's the reason why his writings are preserved because they really do demonstrate uh, just how early. He was and, and that suits their particular political and ecclesiastical ambitions in the seventh century. What's amazing is that they were preserved probably because there was followers of his initial Christian communities and the continuity between them. 
but it's almost as if they put all their eggs in one basket and then quite embarrassingly, probably around the seventh century, they discover this reference to Palladius on the continent that he'd sent by a particular Pope Celestine to the Irish believing in Christ. So there seems to be a kind of a, a bit of retrofitting going on historically by the Irish uh, sort of experts that sort of saying, well, you know, we've already kind of championed Patrick, but now here's this really cool figure called Palladius that we've never heard about and know anything about. So it's complex that way. And um, if Palladius came at all, and sometimes I doubt that he is. Um, I don't think he certainly isn't remembered by the Irish themselves. Elva Johnson has some great stuff on this. I always remember her telling a real, in, a, in a lecture once years ago, Dr. Elva Johnson of UCD. She said, you know, Palladius occurs in a document written by Prosper, uh, his, his, uh, his chronicle. And in a way, she compared it to JFK's moonshot speech. You know, it's almost boasting to say, you know, we choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy or because it's hard, right? The whole idea of Ireland being beyond the frontier in the fifth century, by sort of boasting, saying we sent Palladius to this particular place. It's almost like coming, planting a flag and then immediately coming back. You know what I mean? It's been done, you know, but it's not it's not something that's probably long lasting. It's very interesting to think about that, isn't it? It's, I think sometimes when you get a name as well to somebody, yeah. it just kind of starts to conjure up. Well, what impact did they have and why do we still know about them kind of thing a little bit as well. Going back to Patrick, what do we know about how how it ends for him? So we have these two texts. Does anyone kind of give any clues about, you know, at this stage he wasn't a young man, I imagine. No, quite, quite old. Yeah. Do we know how it ended, like where he was or, or what the story was? Absolutely nothing. He literally disappears into you know the mists of time. Uh, at the end of both his writings, uh, and some people believe they're written quite kind of close together. Um, I'd be one of them. He's writing at the end of his life. He's incredibly depressed. He's pessimistic. He's downbeat about his prospects. He he's he's giving a picture of these disparate, fledgling Christian communities separated, under threat. Um, being attacked and um, being victimized by you know stronger members they're obviously you know uh, very much seen as different from from the regular pagan society he says he'd love to go back to britain to sort of answer his detractors see his family uh, he wants to visit like i said before he wants to visit his brother and his fellow uh, brothers in christ back in gaul and um, but he's, he's too afraid to go because he thinks that if he if he goes, everything will be lost, you know? So it's incredibly downbeat. He doesn't expect, uh, in a way, you can almost see that he's kind of struggling towards the end of his life saying, was this all worth it? You know what I mean? Has, has everything been in vain? Uh, it seems to be teetering on a knife's edge. Um, a very precarious situation. And that's the last we hear of him. I don't like leaving Patrick there. <laughs> it's kind of a very sad place to leave him, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose we, we better talk about the transformation into the one that we we know today, I suppose. Um, when did that kind of um, gr- aggrandizing, if that's the right word, when, when did that begin? And f- who was doing it and for why? Do we know much about that? Again, another complex uh, area and subject as well. I mean, kind of mentioned previously, I mean, within a century, we know that Patrick is being referenced in, you know, literature and hymns and things like that. It's been mentioned in letters. 
uh, just before the hagiography really starts. And if you think about it too, the very fact that those documents survived to the seventh century to be used by hagiographers, to the ninth century to be copied into the Book of Ramah itself, kind of gives you a hint that, you know, Christians sort of realized the importance of these very, very early documents and kept them alive or certainly kept copies of them and, uh, and things like that. They probably were probably on more on the East Coast because it's very interesting then that when Armagh comes along and is beginning to harness Patrick for their uh, claims of primacy, it's it's Armagh, it's Down Patrick, it's Saul and things like that. that's the location. So I would imagine that it's Christian communities there that have probably kept these letters. They've been the ones sort of in the middle between where he probably was out in the west of Ireland and he's writing back to Britain. So if you think about it in the East, you know, that's where everything would have had to come through in a way. But like I said, in the seventh century, this, this sort of um, effort at uh, competing ecclesiastical factions, basically fighting it out, uh, arguing over who's going to be uh, the head of the Church of Ireland. And it actually comes down between uh, differing patron saints. We have Columba, of course, uh, in Iona, we have Patrick and we have Bridget in Kildare. And in fact, it kind of looks in the early seventh century that Bridget and Kildare have just as much of a claim uh, to the primacy of Ireland as Armagh does. You know, it's been argued that actually the whole uh, effort to try and utilise Patrick to look for the earliest evidence uh, culminating in his writing stems from, you know, Kildare and Bridget kind of saying, well, I think we should be the, you know, the head church and things like that. Uh, Cogitosis is life of Bridget is the earliest Irish, you know, hagiography we have. Uh, Cogitosis, um, one of his pupils was Moriku. Who, who goes on to write one of the, the more flamboyant uh, early Irish, uh, earliest Irish life of, of Patrick. And of course, a close contemporary of his is Tyrakon, uh, who also writes another one as well. And it's those lives, uh, it's, it's, it's those efforts uh, that really kind of cement Patrick's position. Um, he's obviously demonstrably very, very early. And I think between that and linked with maybe the political situation at the time of linking in with the, the northern elites, the Inails, uh, the Ariala and things like that. Uh, it's sort of it's a, it's a nice marriage between the contemporary political and ecclesiastical uh, climate at that particular time as well. And he just takes off into the stratosphere uh, at that stage. You're, you're nothing if you can't be associated with St. Patrick. And of course, that makes it easier for other people and other communities and other regions of Ireland to lay claim, oh, of course, Patrick was here uh, and, and you know, the cult of the saints, you could go on. It's a, re it's a really deep, really, really deep subject. How much do you think, that this is a, a slight kind of tangent now, so apologies. How much do you think it helped his claim, not that he was making the claims himself, how much did it help that he became uh, such a big figure because he was an outsider? If you look at Conkill or Columba, He's very much attached to a place, you know. He he's very much attached to a particular dynasty and and so on. Did it help, kind of the claims of Patrick that no one faction particularly owned him, so he was open for grabs for the most powerful faction? Almost. Absolutely, absolutely. Because so little is known, and he is an everyman figure for 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 every person, and every community, and every tradition, and that extends right the way through the medieval period into the early modern period. He's claimed by all sides and all traditions in the seventeenth and eighteenth century too. He's still claimed uh, on both sides of contested uh, multiple Irish identities on the island today. He's he suits everybody, and everybody wants you know a little bit of Patrick essentially, and of course that was recognised too. And and like you say, it's so easy to to uh, harness something or to appropriate something when there isn't that much 
sort of speaking against it when everything's a little bit mysterious as well in the past. And I also think the very fact that he was an outsider, he was a Briton, certainly helped, particularly in the early phases. I mean, you, you get the impression from, again, later hagiography, um, particularly Tyrakon again, I'm always coming back to him. Tyrakon, life of Patrick, you know, every now and again, he mentions a fellow monk of Patrick, or he mentions somebody was British, or he mentions somebody was Gaulish. And in a way, you can either see this from, from, you know, in the seventh century, people were, if you could insinuate that something came from outside, it was more exotic and it was more authentic, you know, because you're, you're, you're reaching back into this fictional past. So if somebody can come from outside, no, no one can contradict you. There isn't somebody, you know, you're not competing against your neighbors and things like that. And it's also much more authentic. I mean, we have a Briton who, 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 who converted us. Oh, we have a Gaul who converted us, you know, and it's going back into uh, Europe and back to Rome, which is another thing that sort of happens. A lot of people, you get this in pop culture too, the, the Celtic church, the so-called Celtic church, and the, and the Irish are doing things differently. Not at all. They're looking to Rome at a really, really early stage. The whole fact of Patrick being appropriated by Armagh for primacy is all to do with Rome to be the first church in order to answer to Rome and things like that as well. So, and you get that as well, even amongst the hagiographies of Tyrakon and Mirko, they all start off with Patrick on the continents, you know, being in touch with Rome, being in touch with popes and things like that, uh, because that's what they're trying to make a connection in a hierarchical sense, all the way back to that centralized Roman authority. It's very interesting, isn't it? And aside from, you know, the Christian aspect, there's a lot of parallels with Jack Chelton there as well, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> A nice guy from Northern England who everybody in the island likes, you know. Uh, Saviour, you know. <laughs> Saviour of Ireland. Absolutely. Um, what do you think he, the man himself, the, the, the guy who's a little bit downbeat, the guy who was wondering was it all worth it, the guy looking at all his work almost becoming undone with the, the great various threats that were hanging over them. If he had a time machine and he could see, you know, obviously not this year, sadly, with COVID, but your typical St. Patrick's Day parade and the fact that there's monuments all around the country, like St. Patrick's Well, just around the corner from me here in Clonmel, beautiful place. What do you think he'd make of that he he was such, you know, he, he became this enormous thing? Would he recognise himself at all, or he would be, he'd be like, yeah, that, that's what I deserve, you know, in all this hard work. What do you think he'd make of it? Is there any way of thinking about it? I think he would be absolutely shocked. Uh, shocked that we were all still here. Because, um, and again, an awful lot of this sort of the, the underlying uh, biblical and religious reasoning and metaphor behind his writings is he thought he was living, he thought the world was coming to an end. Uh, the end of this world in a sort of a Christian apocalyptic sense. He didn't think the world was, was going to last much longer. So the very fact that we're still here, <laughs> the second coming hasn't happened, he would be absolutely shocked at that. Uh, as to what we have done to his name and to his image, uh, he again would be, I would think, appalled. And we've completely missed the whole point <laughs> of what it was about. And yet at the same time, and I think this is another reason to why he's such a, a great figure and claimed by all, you know, his is the start of Irish history. I think he would have appreciated that. His documents are the earliest primary sources we have for Ireland or Britain in the fifth century, but they're the earliest historical documents written in Ireland to people in Ireland by somebody in Ireland. So um, I think he would have appreciated that. It's really 
important that in the midst of all of this, that whole idea of, like you say, Britain coming over, becoming more Irish than the Irish themselves, it's in his documents that we have the first articulation of a collective Irish identity. He says at one particular point, you know, they don't think we're the same Christians in Britain. They think we're, we're lesser uh, because we are Irish. He slips into the we, you know, he's already identifying himself with his people. And that's the first time that we can see that in recorded history anyway. And it's, it's a collective, multiple Irish identities as well. And I think he, that aspect of sort of modern St. Patrick's Day celebrations, I think he'd appreciate that as well, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to think about. It, it really is. And it's just, it's one of those people, again, you know, and I'm so grateful that you joined me with this because it's one of those people that, stories about the past in Ireland that people feel that they know and, and that they own. And they do, aspects, for sure. But there's so many layers to it, isn't there? And the, the actual true story at the heart of it, I think, is even more dramatic in many ways. Than it is. It is. It's a fantastic story. And I think, I, I, I mean, the main thing is, I sometimes think if we didn't have those writings and we, all we had was the later St. Patrick, the Hagiogram, would we even believe that he existed? Probably not, because the versions that we have from those, it's just like, well, this is obviously fictional and this is obviously metaphor and this is obviously, you know, filled for, you know, Christian biblical reasons. But what's amazing about them uh, is just how early they are. And, and he stands on his own pretty much uh, in the fifth century. But what's also cool about them, I think, is, and I've said this before, there's nothing medieval about Patrick, right? For somebody who ushers in the medieval period, you know, this arbitrary line that we draw as archaeologists and historians of 400 AD, for somebody who ushers that in, there's nothing medieval about him. There's no medieval um, silliness about him. There's no cartoonish, uh, flamboyant, uh, uh, almost mythical, uh, boisterous language. Uh, he's incredibly rational. You know, he's the product of late antiquity. And all of the biblical stuff aside, there's nothing unbelievable about what he says. You know, there's no miracles or he's not walking on water. There's no burning bushes. You know, he's getting... And he says it himself, he's getting his, his what he interprets as divine guides in dreams. You know, everyone dreams. Everyone has things that they kind of say, well, I wonder what this means and stuff. But everything else that he talks about, biblical sort of metaphor aside, it's all incredibly realistic. Uh, it fits with what little we do know, as we sort of said. And it sort of helps to think, again, in archaeological ways about what it actually might say about how he kind of gets to particular places in Mayo. How is he taken as a... A slave what does you know it, it all matches there's a rationality to it and 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 i supposed first and foremost for anyone who reads it and can get through the sort of the at times impenetrable biblical nature of it they're incredibly personal documents you really even though he doesn't tell us an awful lot historically or concretely you get the real image you get a real impression of the man you get an impression of somebody that just lived an extraordinary life who felt very strongly he, he somebody who's very human, somebody who's very flawed, somebody who's at times very angry, almost fanatical. Uh, uh, and these are incredibly personal documents. And I think from a modern mindset, I've been able to reach right back through and just before that medieval sort of what I like to call silliness period. I don't think they were silly, but they, they were certainly, you know, doing things in a cartoonish way, certainly when it comes to literature. And to see, we can recognize, I think, a little bit of modernness despite the fact that it's late antiquity. I think it's the last sort of gasp of a late antique logic that we have. And it's so funny. And 
I just think that's one of the things that really, really comes across from reading his writings. Yeah, well, we're, we're a pragmatic people as Northern English. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. And is there anywhere that you'd recommend um, people could find out a little bit more about Patrick and, and his story? I mean, the go-to site is confessio.ie by the Royal Irish Academy. That's a one-stop shop for everything. You can find all of the writings in various different translations, all of the manuscripts and a load of... Um, uh, uh, secondary literature and things like that. I don't know, does Bart have an audio guide about things? Well, we do, yes. <laughs> there is an audio book, authored by your good self, um, which goes into some of these stories and, and what we actually know, trying to peel off, I suppose, the, the the mythical figure. I think it's really, it's an interesting process, you know, because, as we said, once you start to shed some of those skins, you kind of get there. And your own blog as well, um, the address for that is voxhib.com voxhib.com and of course voxhib on twitter is always a brilliant follow as well not for the faint of heart though some days but, no, you know. no, <laughs> but always uh, i'm really grateful you joined me today terry thanks a million for that that was fantastic and not at all thanks for having me and, and, and thanks for listening to, to all my remains for drinks <laughs> before the start i could talk all day oh no, I, I, I wish we could it's fantastic and uh wishing you a very happy st patrick's day as well uh, looking forward to seeing you in the parade yeah that's <laughs> an universal parade yeah, absolutely thanks a million terry so that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology and I just want to thank Terry again for all of his time and his insights and you can find more information and links in the show notes on our website at abartaheritage.ie Please do subscribe and leave us a review if you enjoyed the podcast and better still tell a friend, I'd really, really appreciate that. And I'm not sure if you know, but we actually have a sister podcast. It's called Discover the Stories of Ireland. You can find it by searching Abata Heritage on your favourite podcast platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts or we're on Audible now actually as well, uh, as well as Spotify and all the usual ones. Now, that has a series of audio guides to great places around Ireland, including things like the Aran Islands and oh, lots of other places. Um, the Ellen Hutchins Trail, which tells the tale of Ireland's first female botanist uh, across West Cork. Um, and it has a series of audio books on Irish archaeology as well. So there's hours and hours and hours of uh, free listening there about Irish history and archaeology that you might enjoy. That's Discover the Stories of Ireland by Abata Heritage. And I'd be really grateful if you'd subscribe and join us there as well. And finally, I'd just like to say as well that we're actually planning something really special, I think. I'm biased, but I think it's special. I think it's going to be neat. Uh, it's a new side of our business, Abata Heritage, and it's going to be something that hopefully will help people to discover a lot more about Irish archaeology and history. If you'd like to get in with an early insight into what we're going to be doing, um, and if you'd like special offers and so on, we've just started a mailing list on our website on abataheritage.ie. Please add your name to that, and we'll give you lots of exclusive insights into what's going to be coming on. It's coming very, very soon, and I think it's going to be something... Well, if you enjoy this podcast, you're definitely going to enjoy it. Thanks again for listening to us today, and I'm wishing you all a very happy St. Patrick's Day. I know it's going to be an odd one, but we can still have a bit of fun with it. Thanks very much. Goodbye.